Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. Before I do that, uh, I just want to remind Nathaniel, I'm going to have him for dinner one day. It sounds incredibly patronizing, and forgive me, because when I was your age, I thought I'd be patronizing. Doesn't it excite you? Doesn't it excite you? Just the whole potential of a young person wanting what God has for him. Just, oh, just a few days ago, I was like that. Well, it feels like just a few days ago. You know, I had. I was on my way to London Bible College, 18 years old. Wow. But you know what's the most exciting thing of all? I stand here now, 67 years old, and I'm thinking, what a great journey. What a great journey. All the mistakes, all the, all the messes you make of things, and the grace of God keeps coming back and teaching you and learning, and you have this privilege of touching people's lives and helping them move from where they are to where they should be, even though you're not where you should be yet. It's incredible. Just to be available to God to do what he requires. Not everybody has to be a Bible teacher. I have passion in life, sharing the scriptures. But just to serve him wherever he wants you to be. Oh. Hey, not for that. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. We have been going through the book of Exodus. And we have got to this most dramatic passage of scripture. Uh, the problem is in giving me this passage to preach on is where at the start I'd probably come up with 15 different sermons if you preach on this passage of scripture uh, but I'm not going to preach them all uh, right now uh, so we're going to have to be selective but here we go, let's tell the story first of all Exodus 13 verse 17 I'm reading through just, just into the very beginning of uh, chapter 15, I'll let you read the rest of chapter 15 yourself when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led, led the people around the desert towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around in the land of confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and all his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 
The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephoth. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on the dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. <coughs> the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the lords swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on the dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed, displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And a whole song of praise comes out of that, led by Moses' sister Miriam, and so on. Uh, funny enough, <coughs> this particular song of praise is not one which has been picked up on by modern songwriters for use in church. Strange, I should mention. Um, 
exciting series so far, don't you think? People of uh, Israel in captivity in Egypt, though they went down in good faith, and for a while they were in favor because of Joseph's service. But time went on and time went on. We've seen how God got, got the people out of Egypt. We've seen the ten, ten dreadful plagues that God sent to the Egyptians. We've seen how Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't let the people go. We've, we've seen the dramatic rescue of the people uh, from that final plague of death where the, the lamb had to be killed and the blood smeared on the doorpost and the lintel. We've seen the Passover where the angel of death passed over those houses so that the uh, Israelite children were safe. Dreadful things, and, and we've seen how important it is to get our priorities right. As the, as the people left last week, we saw how uh, the firstborn had to be set apart as to the Lord. The first of everything belongs to God, and it's, it's, it's like saying right at the beginning, God, you spared our children in this terror, but they're yours. You know, God comes first. We've, we've seen all that, and then today, whoa, what a story! What an incredible story. Some odd things, though. Every so often in this, in this book of Exodus, you find a verse thrown in, you go, so what's that about? There's no answer to it. Because we're told that God didn't take them the short way because they weren't ready yet to face the Philistines. And yet we're then immediately told that they went out ready for battle. Might anyone have found that sort of odd juxtaposition of a concept? I don't know what it's about. See again, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And Annie dealt with this superbly, I thought, a few weeks ago, this business of God withdrawing his restraining influence so that that which is natural to, to, to Pharaoh comes to the surface. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and uh, he chases after them. And we also see in this passage that in, uh, after the incredible drama and after the, uh, God's involvement in our lives in these remarkable ways, praise and song, is always the right response to God intervening in our behalf. We should write more songs. Yeah? When, when our extension is finally complete, Lord, let it happen. Yes? I challenge somebody to write a song we can sing just for us, praising God for a new building, an extension, an extension, more room. Yes? Right. <laughs> Some of you have heard this before, but let me give you another version of a story we've read. Nine-year-old Danny, they just say that here, the fact that my grandson is Danny is totally coincidental. Nine-year-old Danny came bursting out of Sunday school like a wild stamp stallion. His eyes were darting in every direction as he tried to locate either his mother or father. Finally, after a quick search, he grabbed his daddy by the leg and yelled, Man, that story of Moses and all those people crossing the Red Sea was great. His father looked down and smiled and asked the boy to tell him about it. Well, the Israelites got out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army chased after them, so the Jews ran as fast as they could until they got to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was getting closer and closer, so Moses got on his walkie-talkie and told the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptians. <laughs> While that was happening, the Israeli Navy built a pontoon bridge so the people would cross over it, and they made it. <laughs> By now, his father was a bit shocked. Is that the way they taught you the story? 
Well, no, not exactly Danny and Mrs. But if I told her to you the way they told her to us, you'd never believe it. <laughs> Great. What can we get? What can we get out of this passage? There's so much there. Huge amount. Uh, far too much for me to go through verse by verse by verse. So I want we've read the story. You know what it's about. I want to draw out from the story some key issues which I think are fundamental to our walk with God. The first one is simply this. God's faithfulness. God is faithful. Centuries before these events, God had promised to Abraham that he would make him the father of a great nation. That promise was made when Abraham hadn't got a son. There was no realistic hope that had ever been fulfilled. And as the years went by, the promise was reiterated through Isaac and through Jacob. But there was a second part of the promise, and that was that God would provide a land for this great nation that would come from Abraham. How far that must have seemed from reality for the people of Israel, from the family of Jacob who became Israel when they went down to Egypt for survival and eventually became slaves. It must have seemed a ridiculous idea. They went in a largish family, and they came out a great nation of people. As Andy shared the other, the other Sunday, probably well over two million of them. That's something. Guess what? God had already fulfilled one of the promises. Not in a way that was expected, but it had happened. In order to become the nation, the family had to be in captivity first. And now they were on the way to the second part being fulfilled. They were heading back to the land of Canaan, heading back to the promised land. God had promised that too. The promises will begin to be fulfilled. We can see it because we can read it in a, I don't know, half an hour. It was 430 years later. 430 years after they'd gone <coughs> into Egypt that they came out. 430 years. 430 years ago was the year 1590. Does that begin to ring a bell with you? Elizabeth I was still on the throne. We had a Protestant country, sort of, for the first time. The population of England had risen to an alarming nearly four million. And food was scarce because farming couldn't keep up with that growth. And there was more to come over the intervening years. The Pilgrim Fathers had yet to set sail for America. The English Civil War was to come. Old Charles getting the chop. The Commonwealth was to come in for four years, and then the monarchy was restored. I could go on, but I will. <laughs> England and Scotland were united, yes they were, uh, in, in what became Great Britain. The emergence of the British Empire for all its good and evil. The Industrial Revolution. The First and Second World Wars. All that time ago, there was no motorised transport, no planes, and so on, and so on, and so on. I share all that with you just to give you an idea that we read the story and go, oh yeah, the people went into Egypt, into captivity, oh look, they're out again. 430 years. 
tell us that for God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. At any stage, including these days when West, the Western world seems to have lost all sight of Christian morality, it's worth remembering that God will fulfill his promises. Always. His purposes will always prevail. He will bring about what he has promised. If we were less infected by our society's fixation with individual self-centeredness, we might still grasp God's bigger picture. We've been brought up with this idea that God's faithfulness depends on whether he grants what I want next year. Now, I'm not saying God isn't interested in that. Of course he is. But those are the byproducts of a much bigger picture of God achieving what he has set out to achieve. Every promise of God, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, is yes in Christ. Every single one. We won't go through them all, but in passing, let me remind you, Jesus is coming back. Joseph's bones. Now, I might be the only person who gets excited about that, but I'm really excited by that. 430 years, well, a little bit longer than that. He died. And yes, he was special in their history and all that sort of stuff, but his bones were there. But they remembered the promise that he'd made his, that the, the people take that his bones wouldn't be left there. Can you imagine today? If somebody had made us, the people then promised for Rebbe to do something, then we'd be going, oh, yeah, I remember, we must do that. We've lost perspective, people. We've lost perspective. God is faithful. How we need to tell our stories, how we need to tell the stories from one generation to another. Let's start with the stories of the Bible. We need our children, we need our adults to know the stories of the Bible. We used to sing songs like, tell me the stories of Jesus. There's actually a number of them. Tell me the old story. Tell me the story of Jesus I want to hear. And tell me the stories of Jesus right on my heart every word. We sing all those. Why? Because it reminds us we have to tell the stories of God's faithfulness, what God is about, what he's achieved, and what he's seeking to do in our lives. It's not just about now. It's about a whole history of God's faithfulness and that which lies ahead as he brings to fruition everything he's promised. We're in the middle of that. We're precious to him and it's important, but it's just part of the huge picture. <coughs> the first thing is God's faithfulness. The second thing from this passage is this. God's people are precious to him. You see the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. That must have been amazing, do you think? I mean, forget the parting of the Red Sea for now. You know, you're wondering, this great pillar of clouds in front of you. Oh, that way, lads. Hey, tell you right now, that way. It's not just you and a half dozen of it. Two and a half million people. Get this way. No pillar of fire at night. You're in dark lights. Well, it's not getting dark after all. We read this, we think, well, of course, this is, 
This is Bible days. They were probably used to that sort of thing. No, they weren't. They were God's man. Totally. And of course, this pillar is all about God's presence, God's presence with them. This is God walking with his people through the whole journey. This is what God does because his people are precious. You see the dreadful consequences in this story of daring to seek to damage the people of God. And that is still true, by the way. Every nation, every people, every ruler who has ever raised their hand against God's people, either as ancient Jewish people or the Church of Jesus Christ, will face the judgment of God one day. Sometimes in this life, actually, will face their commandments, but certainly before the judgment seat of God. And it would be a dreadful thing to have to account for because there is nothing on this earth more precious than the Church of Jesus Christ. Nothing. We together, along with the rest of God's people, are the greatest treasure in God's mind. We are what Jesus died for. We are what he gave his life for, to bring to himself a people. We are, from <coughs> his view, worth his life. It's so precious. These were God's chosen people who came out of Egypt. It was through this people and their descendants that God would reveal, reveal his glory to the world. Chiefly, of course, through Jesus, one of his descendants. God has always worked at separating out a people for himself. It's always the way he's done. He separated out Abraham with the promise he'd be father of a people. He, he worked this process of bringing together this people of God who would be the ones through whom the grace of God would be known to the whole world and primarily through Jesus. And then that, that opening is made through the cross of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles to come in to be the people of God. His ancient people too have a place if they would recognize their Messiah, of course. Through the blood of Jesus, the door had been opened so that if we respond in repentance and faith to his grace, we become made into that people. Not just me and my Savior, me and my Jesus. God saves us into community. Always, always. When people say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, you know, there's a measure of truth in that. But unless you can't get physically into church activities, you can't live as a Christian without being an active part of the church. It makes no sense. Let's, let's remind you what that is said in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this to, to Christians, as you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
if our trust is in Jesus Christ, we belong together as one people. A loyalty that takes precedence over every other loyalty that exists on this earth. I'm British. I am English. I'm a Geordie. The fact that I spent a long time in exile is beside the point. I'm a Geordie. I'm a Newcastle fan. Hey! And, and so on and so on and so on. You know, I'm not England to win whatever they're playing positive. Uh, but the Church of Jesus Christ comes before all that. I have more in common with a Christian brother from Japan or Iran or wherever than I have in common with my next door neighbor. We need to understand this. It's, it's a whole new regime God has brought us into in Christ. A whole new sense of loyalties and a whole new belonging. We are the people of God. And God is on our side. Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 18 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. <coughs> okay. God, God. The verified, verified representative, the presence of God. He hasn't left us. When, when Jesus when Jesus left, he sent his spirit to be the living presence of God in and among us all the time. When people say, well, I wonder what Jesus would do if he was here. He is. All right? We're meant to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit that we know the mind of Christ as we seek him in prayer. What was that about? I forgot what I was talking about now. Um, oh, yes, I remember. We're precious to him. Right? God is faithful and his people are precious to him. Which, which brings a, a related point, which is a, a real passion of mine. Therefore, the idea that is currently around of the inclusive church is nonsense. I'll explain what I mean by that. You remember that passage we just read in, in, in 1 Peter? The church is made up of those who have been called out. We are called to be separate. That's what the word holy means. The exclusiveness of the church is based simply on the response to God's mercy. If in repentance we turn from our own way and trust in Jesus and his cross with all our heart, knowing it is our only hope of salvation rescued by God, then we belong. If we do not do that, we do not belong. People can come and worship with us. People can be loved by us. We can invite them on walks. We can do all sorts of things. But they will never be part of the Church of Jesus Christ until they come in repentance and faith. That's the point I'm trying to make. We seem to live in a world where the Church has lost sight of that. Where people uh, are in unless they opt out. And that's exactly the reverse of what the Bible says. The word repentance seems to be a missing link somewhere in modern Christian preaching. We call people to come and know that God loves them. Hallelujah, God loves them. We call people to come and realize that Jesus died and dealt with their sin. Hallelujah. But the first words of Jesus when he began his ministry was that people should repent. And without repentance there is no salvation. Without turning from doing it our way and laying aside the stuff which is not of God, there is no way for us. However, once we get to that stage, we can talk about being inclusive. We really can, because once once we're in that boat, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be uh, male, female, slave, free, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, whatever nationality, whatever color skin, it doesn't matter. That's inclusive. 
mercy and didn't persist in living unrepentantly a life that is against the teaching of Scripture, do not belong in the family of God and never can, except through repentance and faith. Ooh. And I've got friends who have been bothered to listen to this sermon will criticize me greatly for saying such things. And that is the sadness of where the church is at the moment. And then comes the that final application I want to draw from the passage. And that is the whole business of responsibility. Because to be the people of God brings with it responsibility. We become responsible to lean on him for strength and to seek to live lives that honor Jesus in every way. Being quick to repent and leave behind for those times when we fail. And we do. But seeking to live close to God so that when we, we recognize when we fall short and say, Lord, I'm sorry. We must always be looking forward to uh, the person of Jesus transforming us into his likeness by his spirit. We have a responsibility to be ever seeking to be filled with the spirit, ever seeking to serve him with his purposes, ever seeking to tell others of the great escape which he offers us. Why am I saying all this and what's it got to do with this passage? Well, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says this, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they do. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Oh, I don't like my passages, Richard, do you? Well, I do actually, but they make me uncomfortable. The sobering words. As we shall see as the series develops in Exodus, there was a lot of disobedience there. The people got out of Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea and went on this long 40 year journey, which should have been a lot shorter. It was 40 years because of their disobedience. And many of them were left behind because of their disobedience. So even then, it was largely because of their refusal to repent of their disobedience. And just as those ancient people were rescued by the shed blood of that, of that uh, lamb through the common experience of, uh, of crossing the Red Sea and so on, so Jesus saves us by his blood and calls us to baptism. Uh, Paul links here that coming through the Red Sea with a kind of baptism. It's a fascinating illustration that Paul gives. It's the point of no return. At any point up until the time the children of Israel crossed that Red Sea, 
They really could. But you can't go back. Once the sea's parted and the whole army of Pharaoh's been. Yeah. You can't sort of say, there's water there now. God's delivered you. Hallelujah. <laughs> Baptism still today marks the point of your return, or at least it should do. And we need to preach the gospel in such a way that we call people to repentance. We're not asking people to switch on to Jesus. We're not asking people to add Jesus to their life and be happy. We're saying, if you want to be saved from a lost eternity, and you want to spend eternity with God and find fulfillment in life now, you need to repent of doing life your way and choose God's. When we call people to faith, we're calling them to repentance and faith. We're calling them to profound change. And baptism marks that moment of profound change. It's the great leveler. I've brought up a Christian family uh, in a denomination that didn't baptize at all in the Salvation Army. Uh, I gave my life to the Lord when I was nine years old. You know, I've got this dramatic testimony of how God saved me from, well, you know, not that dramatic to be honest. But I've got friends who were saved in most dramatic ways in adulthood and so on. But you know the great lever of baptism. Because the great lever is that moment when you realise that but for the grace of God, there's nothing. And unless I die to self, salvation has no part with me. Unless I rise with him, I don't experience that new life. And that's what baptism is all about. It's that point of no return. In some Muslim communities, they will, if member of the community becomes a Christian, they will try to persuade them to change their minds until the point of baptism. And then in some of those communities they have a, a particular ceremony whereby they declare the person dead, no longer existing. And in some of the more extreme cases, we're actually appointed a to try and make sure it's true. They, even they recognize that this, this marks a this marks a profound change. We are baptized into community. We're called the death of the old and the journey of obedient faith. We're called to make our journey together through all that now lies ahead of us. And some of it is going to be hard, folks. You know this. Being around, you're all old enough to understand the Christian life will take it. It's worth it 10,000 times over. But it'll be a hard road to travel with lessons to learn. And we need to keep repentance close to the surface because when we blow it or begin to wander off, we need to, to, to say, I'm sorry, I need your help. Until eventually, to use the imagery that the saints have used all through the years, until eventually we get to our next symbolic river. Having come through the baptism into the new life of the Red Sea, we come to the River Jordan. We cross the promised land and into glory. That's how, the, that's how people prophesy. In some ways it's fanciful, but it's a good picture. But until that day, we have a responsibility because we have been called out and because we have been separated by the grace of God to seek to live it for Him with all our hearts and with everything we bring to Him. Let us finish with this. Where are you in all this? Where are you? Have you ever repented of your way and trusted Him with your life? If you've asked Jesus to be your Savior, I'm sure most of you have. But maybe not all. Have you experienced this new life that He offers? Do you realize that the call to the community of faith which transcends all other loyalties? Have you been baptized? I mean, this, I'm not, I'm not in the leadership of this church, I can say it, everybody else gets the flag. If not, get baptized. Alright? 
I baptized, I didn't know any better. And when I did know better, I tried to pretend it wasn't necessary because I was full of pride. I don't mean you can't be saved without it, but let's not go down that for never-ending spiral. It's just biblically right. If you haven't been and you're a Christian, get baptized. Seeking to walk obediently. Are you available to God? To be a Bible teacher? To join the church speaking team? To do whatever? And do you realize that however hard the way may be, God is always faithful and He will sometimes take us to the place of the impossible?